Christ be with you all. We will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this evening. I encourage you to look that up in the scriptures or in the printout in the worship order. I would like to bring you up to speed on where we are. We have been in a mini-series on 1 Thessalonians, and each week we have touched on the coming of the Lord in one way or another as each chapter of this book ends with some reference to the coming of the Lord. And so last week we heard that Christ is our only comfort in life and in death, both in this life and in the life to come. We heard the divine liturgy of resurrection and transformation about all the things that that will happen in the order in which they will happen. And we finally heard that we should comfort one another with these words, that the Lord is coming for us and we will be with the Lord forever. And that brings us to 1 Thessalonians 5, where a series of questions are raised. When will the Lord come again? How long must we wait Why must we continue to endure affliction? And these are all common questions and very important questions. And hopefully in the next few moments, we will be able to answer some of these questions from the text that we look at this evening. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. When will the Lord come again? How long must we wait? And why must we endure so much affliction in the meantime. These are questions that practically every generation of Christ church have asked 
each other, ask their leaders, ask the Lord in prayer. These are questions that everyone, it seems, have tried to answer in one way or another. And so far, everyone who has tried to predict the times and the seasons of the coming of the Lord have gotten it wrong. Everyone who has made a prediction has gotten it wrong. The most recent example I can think of is the example of Harold Camping, who predicted that the so-called rapture and judgment would happen on the 21st of May, 2011. The story goes that he spent millions of dollars in advertisements around the nation just to get his message out. I'm talking spot ads on radio, billboards, mailouts, flyers, all of these things to get his message out that on the 21st of May 2011, that will be the end of all things. Well, the 21st of May came and went. And Camping came out and decided that he had miscalculated and had a new calculation and pushed it off to the 21st of October 2011. Two years later, Camping died a false prophet in disgrace. Sean Watkins of the band Nickel Creek wrote a satirical song about this event because he said as he was driving through the streets in a part of California, he saw one of those billboards and he wrote a song from the perspective of camping, trying to make the case that, in fact, the 21st of May would be the end. Now, we know the scriptures tell us that for everything, there is a season and a time. There is a time for this under heaven. And just because the scriptures say there is a time and a season for everything under heaven doesn't mean that God is going to tell us the time and the season of everything that comes about. You do have people in the church at Thessalonica who are wondering about when the Lord is going to, uh, going to come and how long they must wait and why may, they must endure affliction. And they want answers from Paul. And so Paul writes them and says, look, about times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written about you, uh, written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And that phrase thief in the night is a phrase that is borrowed from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus used this to describe his own coming within a generation, his own coming against the system of the Jews, the old age and bringing about judgment on Jerusalem. And he used that language. I will come like a thief in the night. And the apostles picked up on that. And so you'll see it in Paul's writings and Peter's writings. And you see it in the book of Revelation, this language thief in the night. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is a robber? It doesn't mean that he's a criminal. It means that he's coming at a time that's unexpected when people are checked out, when they're not paying attention, when they are asleep, come by cover of night. And so it's a surprise coming. Now, the trouble for most of us, because we live in the 21st century and we are good Americans and we have our smartphones and calendars and we like to plan and keep organized. Whenever we hear something like this, it makes some of us very nervous because wouldn't it be nice to put in your calendar on your iPhone? Wouldn't it be nice to put Jesus is coming on this day? 
And I'll be sure to be ready on that day because I'm going to have reminders telling me Jesus is coming on this day. And wouldn't it be neat to know that he's coming at a certain time in a certain season? And then you would have enough time to get ready for his coming because you could kind of plan it out. We're planners. We like to know what's going to happen in advance and we want to put it on the calendar. But throughout the scriptures, when the Lord talks about his coming, he only tells us what he's going to do. He never tells us when he's going to do it. He tells us that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come when you least expect it. But he doesn't tell you the time of the night or the day or the season of the year when that might happen. So again, this drives some of us crazy. And we might get paralysis from analysis trying to crack the code and to figure it all out. And if you're the kind of person who does that, beware, because eventually you'll forget to prepare yourself for the actual coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You can get lost in a labyrinth of newspaper clippings and conspiracy theories and and charts and graphs. But don't go there. There's a much easier way and a much better way. Now, the reason the Lord does not tell us when he is coming is because he has a certain plan for us and a certain uh, program of life for us. He wants us to live and move and exist before his face with a true sense of expectation to generate within us this eager expectation for his coming. In fact, it's a kind of test. The longer we wait, it might be that we're waiting and we get bored of waiting, tired of waiting, and then we check out and do something else. It shows that we have a low level expectation of the Lord and his coming. But those who are able to stay on point and day after day, year after year, look forward to the coming of the Lord are showing that their expectations are growing within them. They have a high level expectation of the Lord. But there's a problem here. There's a problem, and the, the church in Thessalonica faced it, and it's a problem we face as well. The longer the Lord seems to take, and I'm saying that the longer He takes from our perspective and the way we mark time and seasons, the longer the Lord takes, the scarier the world seems to get. And this is what was happening in Paul's day. Paul points out that there were people around the church who had, the, had their own messages, their own gospels, their own propaganda machine going. And they were pumping messages into the culture. And those messages were competing with the gospel of Christ. And so you had people, if you see this in verse 3, you had people who were saying, there is peace, there is security. And we read that and think, well, who is Paul quoting? And he's actually quoting the motto of the Roman Empire. We have our own slogans in the United States, but this was theirs. There is peace. There is security. This is what the Roman Empire promised to bring. This is the gospel of Rome. And so the longer the Lord seems to take, the more politicians and prophets are beginning to take advantage of God's people. In Paul's time, the Roman Empire was the United States of America in their day. They were the most powerful nation in the world. And many considered Rome to be the greatest nation under God's green earth. Their national interest and their cultural influences spread everywhere. 
around the known world, everyone knew the gospel of Rome, that Caesar is Lord and Rome brings peace and security to the world and maintains that peace of security, peace and security with military force. All they had to say is it's about our national interests and everyone say, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Our national interests. They had their own version of the Patriot Act. They had their policies in place to deal with outsiders. And anyone who questioned the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, anyone who dared questioned it was considered a traitor, an enemy of the state, a threat to the peace and security of the Roman Empire. It's no wonder that when Paul went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people rose up in the city and said, this guy is a troublemaker. He's preaching a rival king to Caesar. He claims that Jesus is Lord. He is turning the whole world upside down. And this is, in fact, what the gospel does. The power of the gospel collides with the false gospels of the world. And you see this tension and conflict. And what happens as people come to faith in Jesus and they no longer confess their faith in Caesar? As they come to embrace the true gospel of peace and security in Christ, you find them giving up their allegiance to the Roman Empire and the peace and security of that nation. And yes, that does disrupt the world. It turns the world upside down. You don't have people in Thessalonica trying to ride the fence both ways. They're not singing on their Sunday gatherings, make Rome great again and trademarking that song. And yet evangelicals will do it in the United States. Something has gone terribly wrong when these things get mixed and matched together in the wrong way. The gospel of Jesus Christ poses a direct challenge to the gospel of Caesar and Rome. And that is why Paul was accused of turning the world upside down. That is why the church in Thessalonica are wondering, wait a minute, how long is this going to go on? When is Jesus going to come and make good on his promises? And notice that Paul cuts straight to the heart again. Verse 3, he cuts to the heart when he says, People are saying there is peace and security. And while they're out preaching that in Rome, and that is the message heard around the empire, then Paul makes this bold statement, sudden destruction will come upon them. So just when everyone thinks that they are totally safe and secure behind the walls of the Roman Empire, behind the military might of the Roman Empire, protected by the economic strength of the Roman Empire, it's in that moment that Paul says, that's when you got to be careful. Do not be lulled asleep. Do not be put to sleep, lulled into a slumber by what you see happening in the culture around you. Don't listen to a false gospel because it's in that moment when everyone has been lulled asleep and they find comfort there. It's in that moment that destruction will hit all of a sudden without warning. And he says it'll come in three ways or like this. It'll be like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman 
She's known that she's been expecting the baby for a long time. But what she didn't know is the precise moment, the hour, the day or night when that labor pain would hit. And it surprises. Or like a thief coming in the night. We've already touched on that. It's a total surprise. Or like the first rays of sunrise sunrise over the horizon. You knew night had to end at some point and you saw a little bit of glow on the horizon. But suddenly the first rays of the sun appear and without knowing the exact moment, suddenly the sun is up and blinding you because you've been in darkness so long. Paul says they will not escape. What will they not escape, Paul? They will not escape the destruction that will be unleashed on them on the day of the Lord. Now, this was a bold statement, a bold message for Paul to preach here. The one man, the Apostle Paul, former Pharisee, now a preacher of the gospel, preaching against the tide of the Roman Empire, having the audacity to say to Caesar and Rome, the end is coming for you. And it will come when you least expect it. How would he know that? How could he possibly know it? He's not chicken little running around saying the sky is falling. That's not what he's doing. He's preaching the revelation of Christ. He's not trying to work people into a frenzy. He's trying to prepare the people of God for that dark time. And that's what I want to do now. Listen carefully. This isn't about Rome for us. We don't live in Rome, but we live in a place very much like it, don't we? Let those of us who live in the Pax Americana who feel safe behind the wall of American exceptionalism, who feel secure in the peace and security provided by the United States of America, take heed lest we stumble and fall in the darkness of her false gospel. Let us take heed lest we sleep and slumber in the creature comforts and the cultural fantasies of the peace and security of America. As Paul warned, we need to wake up because trouble is coming. We need to wake up because trouble is coming. And you might think, no, 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 trouble isn't coming to us. Trouble comes to other nations and other countries, but not to us. We're the greatest nation on the earth. We are safe and secure. And what that tells me is that you bought into a false gospel. You're not looking at the heart of the nation the way God has taught you. Consider this, that a nation that systematically slaughters unborn children and mishandles bucket loads, train loads of wealth and takes advantage of immigrants and refugees and bullies other nations who can't tell the difference between a man and a woman who disregards the widow and the orphan and the poor is not a nation of peace. It's a nation at war. A nation at war with God and on the brink of the destruction that only God can bring. It's no longer a city of light on a hill. It's a city of darkness down in the veil. So do not let yourself get lulled to sleep in the comforting arms of Lady Liberty. Make sure that you live your life marking the distinction between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the false gospels of Caesar. 
Make sure you stand out in stark contrast as children of light in this dark world. Paul says it clearly, doesn't he? You are not darkness. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We all dwelt there at one time and we were all darkness at one time. But the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has illumined our hearts and transformed our lives so that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And you become what you behold. We're gazing upon the glories of the Lord. And this is transforming us day by day, moving us from darkness into light. And so the exhortation to us in verse six is let us not sleep as others do. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. When I was a teenager, my dad used to say when I wanted to stay out late, "Ah, can we stay out past 11? Uh, Maybe you could get to midnight. Then he would say, oh, it's been my experience that nothing good or illegal happens after midnight out on the streets. A few times we stayed out past midnight and I can bear witness that he was right. Paul points out that bad things happen in the middle of the night, in the deep darkness of the world. But too many of us have been lulled to sleep. We slumber. We're fading. We're losing our edge, as it were. And this is a wake-up call for us. This is to nudge us awake and get us to see things a little bit more clearly. In his little commentary on this, Paul for everyone, N.T. Wright explains The world will soon plunge into convulsions, bringing terror and destruction all around. The dawn is breaking. The birth pangs are coming upon the world. The robbers might break in at any time and the empire is under threat. So what must you do? Paul tells us, doesn't he? You need to put on your armor. This is not a time to sound the retreat. This is not a time to put your head in the sand or circle the wagons or pretend it's not going to happen. This is a time for spiritual struggle, spiritual warfare. This is a time to get ready. Put on your armor, he says. You need to stay awake and alert and alive as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. As long as you are here on the earth, awaiting the coming of the Lord from heaven, you will be engaged in real spiritual warfare. Put on the armor of God in Christ. We are members of the church militant on the earth, fighting the good fight of the faith with spiritual weapons of righteousness in the left hand and in the right hand. And then Paul tells us, make sure you put on the breastplate of faith and love and put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. He wants us to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He wants us to be prepared for struggle, prepared to engage if we must, prepared to defend ourselves and each other in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to put on your armor simply means this. To put on your armor means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To be clothed in 
Christ. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you get to gear up and go vigilante on the world. Paul is not calling us to become terrorists in our culture. He's calling us to be ambassadors of Christ and representatives of Jesus. And why do we wear these things? Because we are displaying as we go out and engage the world, we are showing them the hope, faith, and love that are in Christ. And saying this is a better way of life. That true peace and true security are found in the Lord. Now, we don't always see what the Lord sees, do we? We don't always make sense of things the way he does. Often our vision is clouded. Our, our perspective is, is different or limited. But the Lord sees the heart. He searches the mind. He knows the soul of individuals and of nations. The language that Paul is using in 1 Thessalonians 5 is language that that echoes the prophet Jeremiah. Peace, peace when there is no peace. It's language that echoes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 where we hear truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. So the coastlands will he will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Paul is simply echoing what he has heard the prophets preach, what he heard Jesus preach, and he's conveying it to us. Why? Because he wants to center us on Jesus Christ. He wants us to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ. He wants us to engage in spiritual combat with the power and grace of Jesus Christ. Now, we might hear about this coming destruction, coming all of a sudden, and we might fear and wonder if God might make a mistake, if we might be taken out with the enemies of God. But verse 9 makes it very clear that God knows how to draw a distinction between his people and the world. Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead, we might live with him. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said to the church in chapter 3, end of chapter 2, going into 3, he said, look, we told you in advance that following Christ and bearing the cross was going to be difficult. We told you in advance that we were destined to suffer affliction. And that's the very thing we're doing. But he's making a distinction here that, yes, we are destined to suffer affliction in the here and now. Life is going to be very hard, very difficult from time to time. But notice we are not destined to suffer wrath from God in the there and then. 
When we suffer affliction, it is at the hands of the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. But we need not fear suffering the wrath of God. Because in Jesus Christ, we find true peace and security. Why? Because Jesus died for us so that whether we are alive or dead, we will live in him. Some of you might hear these things and think, whoa, I did not think it was going to end like this. This is not what I expected when we talk about the coming of the Lord. And if that describes you, if you're thinking, I didn't think it would end this way, let me just assure you that you're not the only one. I don't want you to be discouraged by these things. I don't want you to feel defeated by these things. And neither did Paul and the Holy Spirit because you see in verse 11, Paul seems to anticipate our response to this. It's overwhelming. It's more than we can bear. And yet Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So encourage and edify. Encourage and edify. What does that look like in real life? Here's what it looks like in real life. There is a scene in the film Return of the King that I think will help you make sense of all of this. And in this scene, dragons are flying all around. Orcs and demons are attacking. The world is on fire. The city is under siege. People are dying. There's fear everywhere. Darkness covers the land. The world of men seems to be on the brink of failing and falling. And one tiny little character with whom we could all relate and all identify sits holding his sword, trembling with fear. And he says, I didn't think it would end this way. I didn't think it would end this way. To which a wise old wizard responds, end. No, the journey doesn't end here. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back. And all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores. And beyond a far green country. Under a swift sunrise. And that isn't so bad, is it? And all the things that we've described, it is the end. It is the end for some, but not for all. It is the end of an old world, which simply opens up into a new world. And we've been saying week in and week out, the future is what shapes the present. The end is what shapes the now. Throughout this service already today, perhaps without thinking much about it, you have been living in this story. Already we have prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in a moment we will recite the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father 
from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ will come again. And it is the promise and the hope of his coming that begins to shape and reshape our life in the here and the now. So how shall we live between the now and the then? Between the already and the not yet? What must we do with the rest of our lives? Well, we've heard it clearly here, haven't we? We must watch for the Lord. And we must watch out for each other. Watch for the Lord and watch out for each other. Because we are in this together with Christ and with His church. I love the way Eugene Peterson, the pastor of pastors, put it in one of his interpretations of a passage of Scripture when he said this. And we'll end with these words. Be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Otherwise, that day is going to take you by complete surprise. Spring on you suddenly like a trap. For it's going to come on everyone, everywhere at once. So whatever you do, don't go to sleep at the switch. Pray constantly that you will have the strength and wits to make it through everything that's coming and end up on your feet before the Son of Man. Don't let your heart get bogged down with things that don't matter. Don't let your heart become comfortably numb. Don't let your heart get rattled by the stuff of life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Rest in the gospel of His peace. And you will find security for your souls.